and welcome to episode three of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Carruthers, and this time I'm talking with Mark Pesci about artificial intelligence. A little bit of an introduction to Mark. He's a well-known futurist, inventor, author, educator, and broadcaster, and he is one of the most prescient people I know. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Kate. So we've been chit-chatting uh, through back channels about AI in various forms. So what what sort of things did you want to talk about today? Look, there is so much here to unpick and unpack. It's almost hard to know where to start because at on one side of things, you have a number of Turing award-winning AI researchers now screaming that there is an existential extinction threat because of AI. I feel as though these are people who have violated the very first rule of commercial business, which is you don't sniff your own PR, but we'll leave that aside. And you also now have an incredibly active open source community who are building amazing new AI tools that aren't siloed any meaningfully way. They aren't controlled by a Google or a Microsoft or an open AI. And they're finding their way into all sorts of new ways of using them. And all of this is going to, as near as I can tell, coalesce around the field that we currently call autonomous agents. And Sam Altman gave an interview, so CEO of OpenAI, right? Gave an interview a couple of days ago, I think at the uh, University College London. And he said, you know, we offered this ability to make plugins for ChatGPT and lots of people are, and I've used some of them, some of them are okay. One of the nice things you can do with a plugin is actually get it to read a document. You can feed it a PDF and so it can summarize a PDF, which is one of the best things I found you can use BARD for and Bing. They're really good at taking big documents and I read a lot of AI papers now, except I get them to summarize them for me. It's like a lot of people think they want to make plugins for ChatGPT. In fact, they want the reverse. They want to plug ChatGPT into what they're doing. And when you do that, what happens is you basically get this little motor that you can drop into anything that gives that thing that you've built around it a whole bunch of autonomy and agency that it never had before because it was simply too hard, even with really high quality AI systems, it was really too hard. And so the, the category example of this is a program called AutoGPT, which is freely available. You can download it and install it. It's a little finicky because if you're doing it right, it wants to run inside a para virtualization thing called Docker. Docker is a system that they use when you're running a program so it doesn't invade the rest of your operating system and you set it all up. And then it says, what would you like me to do? And you just type in a request. It's like Aladdin's genie. And then it will go and break that task down. And you can be quite English about this. Oh, I'd like a, I'd like a digest of news about Ben Robert Smith, let's say. And it will go and it will figure out what that means, break that down, figure out the websites, figure out the code to then scrape those websites, create a whole bunch of files, digest it, feed the digest into ChatGPT to consolidate it, and then give you a little file back at the end. And it works all of that out from first principles. Well, I had, I was, you shared a really great example of somebody using AutoGPT for nefarious purposes the other day. Do you want to talk a bit about that? So, you know, I'm always sitting here going, oh, what are all the great uses that we can have for ChatGPT? And fortunately, there are people with darker minds than mine who do think about how these technologies, which are very potent, can be weaponized. And this 
person on Twitter who goes by the handle NFT God, which kind of, I think, tells you where they're coming from, said, okay, I'm going to fire up AutoGPT and I'm going to generate a disinformation campaign for the 2024 presidential election. And he basically said, that's what I want to do. He hits return. I'm saying they, because actually I don't know if it's a man or a woman. None of us do. And they watched as AutoGPT broke that down and said, okay, what I need to do if I'm going to do a disinformation campaign is to set up some fake Facebook accounts and then some fake news sources and start building the social media channels so I can start feeding disinformation into these sources through the fake. And it was doing all of this. And finally, after it had run a fair bit and really worked out a lot of the strategy and had started to practice some of the technique, they pulled the plug because they're like, okay, that was enough of a demonstration. And you know there are going to be a lot of people out there who are not going to be pulling that plug because that is going to be exactly what they want. And just just for for our listeners, I might just read his this, this last tweet by this person, and they said, "quote My recommendations for you: trust nothing you read on social media. Learn how AI works. Think for yourself. There are more forces than ever trying to manipulate you." And then the follow-up tweet was, these things were happening. They were just being done manually by groups of expensive people. With AI, it can be done autonomously by one person for free. So people are sitting at home in their pajamas, able to launch troll bot armies at will, created by autonomous AI. Yeah. And, you know, that's, in some sense, the nicer side of it. I mean, you talk about computer security on this podcast, and I think it's just as easy with a different request to set up an attack botnet. Oh yeah, we've already had the first ones. Yeah. So so this is and and so I look at all of this and, and you know you went through that list, understand how AI works. What happened to me is I entered May going, ah, oh, whatever, you know, we'll see what's going on. I'm sort of staying across the space. I wasn't really that in. I exited May with a personal mission to be able to educate as many people as I can around what these tools are and to the degree that they're willing to learn how these tools work so that they can both understand them and also maybe practice some defensive tool making with these because all of these tools can be used to create disinformation i'm pretty sure they can also be used to create disinformation firewalls mm. well the you know, look, we need to look at the difference between misinformation and disinformation because misinformation is is inadvertent. It's not always intentional. You know, people sharing anti-vax stuff that they believe is often Lewis writing for the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. But disinformation is sort of an intentional uh, plan to send out bad information. And the real challenge we've got now is, is the a sheer amount of utter bullshit that will be out there that we'll have to wade our way through and try and judge. Yeah, and again, we're going to be, I think, ever more reliant on our our social network of trusted, the people who we trust when they open their mouths, right? And you and I both have a set of people who when they say something, we will take that with maybe not absolute waiting, but with a lot of waiting. When they say, this is this, we will go, okay, I know you, I trust you, we've built up a history here. Sometimes those people go off the rails, we've seen it happen, but you can also sort of know that it's happening. 
Um, and I think we're going to be drawn ever closer into those tight networks because you're right, the ambient environment is going to be filled with so much chaos and noise that this period when we could sort of reach out and grab information and then pull it in and expect that to be accurate. And that was a relatively brief period, maybe from around 1995 to around 2015, mm -hmm. right? Basically till we got to Gamergate and then it was all over. That period is well and truly over now. And we're probably going to change our behaviors in respect to that. So we're really into, into that sort of Rumsfeldian post-truth world now. Goodness. So, it sounds good. And this is the thing. It's like large language models are really good at truthiness, right? Yeah. They'll spin something up and it'll sound, oh yeah, of course that's right. But of course it's not. I got it to do a, bi a biography for me because there's plenty of stuff about me on the internet and it made up stuff completely, you know, that sounded really plausible. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a, a friend who's quite well known and quite well known in the media. And one of my tests for any large language model is to get it to give biographical information about her and none of them. I don't even think ChatGPT has gotten it correct yet. And it's not hard. It's just the way these models work. Well, there was that lawyer recently who who got it to write some stuff and it cited all these cases that didn't exist. Yeah, and that is uh, someone who misunderstands what's going on with these technologies. But of course, at the same time, right, GPT-4 has theoretically passed a bar exam somewhere in America. So people must think that, of course, it's able to do citations correctly and accurately. I mean, it's... Okay, so, so we need to step back a half step here. The technology appears magical to people. And part of what I enjoy doing is ripping the blinders off people's eyes around it and basically pointing out that what's going on is an extremely advanced form of the kind of text prediction you have on your smartphone when it's trying to guess the next word you're going to type in. Right? And it's working off a much larger data set. It's using a transformer, which is helping to guide that more accurately than your phone is. But it's not fundamentally different in kind from that. I, I, I'm always fascinated though, because everybody seems fascinated by using ChatGPT on the internet, which is a whole pile of really unreliable data. Whereas I'm much more interested what I can do when I turn this technology inside my organization to my own known reliable data and point people to the right sources, you know. So this is a trusted, reliable source for you to get information and then it can aggregate it and bring it back. And I'm really interested in the fact that with this technology, I'll never need to have another app on my phone because I'll be able to just talk to a chat GPT-like client and then I won't need all those event apps that they keep making me install. And this, I, I mean, I, I feel like at the organizational and the corporate level, I mean, what we're seeing pretty clearly is there are going to be sort of three classes of these kinds of AIs. There's going to be the global model. So that's the BARD, the Bing, the open AIs, chat GPTs, right? There's going to be the personal models, the ones that will either live on your phone or will be hooked into one of the big models, but we'll be, you know, we'll be monitoring our health, our fitness, our whatever it might be, right? Our stress, who knows? They'll be quite personal though, and they'll collect personal data. And hopefully the models will run locally on our phones so that the, the data stays on our phones. But of course, you and I both know that may not happen. No, that won't happen. And then there's the organizational models, which is what you're talking about, which are designed to sit inside an organization and service the data needs for that organization. And I think that's going to be the growth market. And you don't see any of the entrepreneurs 
even I'm reading all this stuff in the New York Times about all the little startup culture around AI in San Francisco now. And they're like, hi, I've got an, a, a, an AI that will help you pick the right wine. I'm like, I don't, I never asked for an AI sommelier, but okay. What I want is something that's going to take the enormous amount of data in my organization, which as we know from the repeated break-ins in Australia, the organizations are not even across and get it to actually do interesting things for me, right? That seems quite reasonable and a good business. Yeah, it, and, and you know, but people need to have lined up all their data. So luckily I've spent the last couple of years lining up all of our data so it's conveniently located so that we can do that kind of thing. But a lot of other people haven't even contemplated that kind of exercise. Although the interesting thing is that one of the th first tasks for the AI will be an autonomous program to collate the data and to throw enough meta metadata at it that another AI can go on and make sense of it. Whether it does a good job of that is going to be a second, a second order question, right? But some of the stuff that you did by hand will be some of the stuff that those organizations will attempt with varying degrees of success to automate. Yeah, good luck with some of those transactional systems because they're not exactly set up to be friendly for bots. <laughs> I know. Imagine, imagine one of these LLMs having a complete meltdown when it's dealing with some ancient like SNA. What is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to imagine that. So, what do you, what do you think about people like um, Toby Walsh, who's on the record going, "Killer robots will kill us all." Yeah. Um, you know, and AI merging with robots is is really interesting. Well, and autonomous agents are one slice of exactly what that is, all right? And I think it always comes down to this question of agency and where is the agency located, right? And so you have to take a look at the system and go, okay, a robot is on its own not going to become a slaughter bot. It's going to become a slaughter bot because it has been instructed to be a slaughter bot. Probably not by another AI. <laughs> Right, but probably by a human being. And so you have to then locate agency where it's necessary. And once you've located that agency in a person who's telling the slaughterbot to be a slaughterbot, then you, you have a framework for being able to talk about to manage it. But if you're trying to isolate these things as things in themselves that possess their own agency, and this is very much what I see the folks who are running around screaming existential threat doing that they're that they're ascribing agency to the technology itself which the technology frankly has not demonstrated and is not demonstrating but in fact is simply a reflection of the agency that they're projecting into it i had that fight on mastodon with some people they were going the this this ai is evil and i'm like no it's just technology it's not evil it can't it doesn't think it doesn't think it can't slaughter chickens under a full moon. It's not evil, people. It's yeah. But, but we we keep anthropomorphizing the technology, and we don't think about the main thing. You want to know is who created it and what was their intent, and and what data did they use to train it? And I mean, again, of course, this is the thing, right? Washington posted that beautiful analysis of the data set used to create train. Palm was the one that they, or Palm 2, the Google data set was the one they had access to, but they were assuming that this is also true for GPT-3 and 4. And it had, in its core data set, right, it had Kiwi Farms, which is the most notorious anti-trans yep. website on the web, Stormfront, yep. which is the white supremacist Nazi website on the web, and 4chan. 
And the great thing is I ask roomfuls of people how many people have heard of FormChan and ForChan. About two nervous hands go up, which I think is a good sign. So you and I know what 4chan is. It's the internet sewer. Peewee farms, very bad. Um, but but you know, but that that's always been the problem with machine learning, where we've had to get these vast amounts of data. Because I remember the early days mm. in the nineties, like late nineties, when when ML first happened, um, they were using Enron emails as a training data set. That's not a good email data set for people to train an AI on. So, I heard that last week, maybe the week before, Kate Crawford point blank asked um, Sundar, I think, whether they used the Gmail data set to train Palm. And Google said, of course we didn't, and then deleted that response. Oh, oh. Well, I think the, the, the thing that I've discovered in the ML world is people are so hungry for training data sets that they will use whatever they can get their hands on. And ma'am, there's your problem. <laughs> because because for the some of the AI stuff that we've done at work, some of the machine learning stuff that we've yeah. done, we've got so many students coming through, you know, we've got 1,500 students in a class each term. So if you've got data going back a couple of years, you've got huge amounts of data to train it on. But for things that you've got smaller data sets that you want to solve for, it's really challenging to find data sets that are big enough. Yeah. No, and... <sighs> We're learning a lot. I mean, part of what's going on, there's a couple of different things that's going on. One of them is that we're using large models now, right? And we have an understanding of that. But particularly in the open source community, you know, there's this whole, <laughs> there's the story of the South American mammals. So in March, the Meta AI group comes out with Llama, which is a, a, a model that's designed to run on a fairly beefy PC all the way down to a smartphone because it got 65 billion parameters and that model apparently quite good down to 3 billion parameters and I've used that model, it's stupid, but nonetheless it works. And then some researchers at Stanford came along and created Alpaca. And when they did that, they took the Llama dataset and then did this fine tuning on it using a technology called LoRa. And they invented it and all this is out in the papers. And then another group took all of that and then took all of the conversations with ChatGPT that had been posted to Reddit, because there's a thread in Reddit, of course, with all those conversations, used that as training data and created Vicuña, right? So you now have Llama, Alpaca, Vicuña, and each step along the way, what you see is that they're actually able to take a small data set or much smaller than we had thought and to fine tune it to give better results. Now there's a bunch of research coming out about how that's not as good as ChatGPT, you know, with, but we actually don't know how big the network is with GPT-4. It's, it's assumed to be more than 500 billion parameters and perhaps more than a trillion parameters and perhaps- and I'm, I'm talking to some people who are, who are working on building composite data sets, like take a partial data set and grow it and stuff like that. So, and this is all happening in weeks. Like, no, 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 it's real time now. Every every morning, progress I, used to happen in years, and now it was then it was months, and now it's days and weeks. Yeah. Now everyone, every everyone in machine learning is basically just drinking jolt cola and staying up all night, and then po posting. The thing is, it's all on because it's all on ArchiveX. It's it's not going through formal peer review processes. It might at some point, right? But everyone's just got oh my god, my group's got this great result. 
you know, and today's, I can't even remember what today's was because there's just so much of it. But yeah, so part of what we're seeing is there's an enormous speed up, but there's a rocket under everyone working in the field now, and they're all working really hard. And now there's so much open source, either models or coding that they can work with that they, there's, it's easy to pass the ball, tweak it a little bit, improve it, get that out there, and then go to do the next thing. So, so you know, it's an incredibly dominant, dynamic space. Things are changing on an, a daily or hourly basis. So what are your big tips for people who are trying to navigate in this area, trying to think about it? Because I'm conscious that you've got to go soon. So what are your tips? Look, I, it feels the first thing is to not be scared, right? This is, this is not the singularity. This is not Skynet. Don't worry about any of that, okay? And I cannot stress this enough because I do give a lot of public talks and people quite earnestly ask me this question. And I go, look, at, that's all about when the computers start getting agency and start improving themselves. That is, this is about us learning how to get really good at building machine learning systems. Right. So it's really talking about our capabilities, not the machine's capabilities. And I think the first thing to do is just dispel that. The second thing to think about is that all of these tools, when used reasonably well, will change the style of work and they will change workflow and they will change our approaches to work. And any org that's thinking about this has to be willing to think that, in fact, not only are they adopting a new tool, but that the work will transform around the tools that they're using. And the only way you can know that is by giving the tools a play. Now, as you pointed out, there's a lot of tools that you need that you don't have yet. So part of what you can do is to start to spec out what the tool is that you need because we're hitting an inflection point where the capability for you to be able to tell AutoGPT, build me a tool that does, and its ability to be able to do that enough for you to get enough of a result to get on to the next thing is getting pretty close. Mm, yeah, right? it's pretty good at coding. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, it, and again, it depends on the depth of how many examples, like it's lots of Python on there. Um, lots of uh, window shell, but you know, you get into more strange stuff. It, it doesn't do as well, but it can. Um, and, and then to really seriously, I guess, think about what it's going to mean. So at the end of this year, Microsoft is going to be sticking Copilot into Windows 11, right? So about half a billion desktops. They're going to boot up and they're going to be fully integrated into Copilot Bing GPT-4, right? That's all of a piece. We do not have any understanding of what that means. People who are using these systems don't understand what that means. So the thing that people who are responsible now need to do is to start to play with these systems on a daily basis, become conversant with their strengths and their weaknesses. And I think this is really important because people immediately assume that AI is good at everything. It is not. We do not have self-driving cars, and they're still a long way away because, yeah, sure, you can throw ChatGPT in into a robot, but a robot is basically a bunch of motors and then a whole bunch of exceptions to deal with the real world. And ChatGPT ain't good at that. So it's good for people to know where the limits are because that tells you where you can go fast and where you have to go slow. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for that perspective, Mark. Really enjoyed this chat. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and hope you'll join us next time.
And that is it for another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Crothers. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice. See you next time.